Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. We are back and we are continuing our buddy read, our read along of the Chathryn Voyage. Today, we are talking about book three, The River of Shadows. And with us, of course, is series author Robert V. S. Reddick, and then Blaze from Under the Radar Books. Blaze, Robert, thank you so much for being here, for returning today. Thanks for having me. It's really fun. Thank you, Blaze. I know you're on the road, and, and <laughs> as I am, and all of you guys for making this happen at a rather more awkward time than usual on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Pleasure to be here, everybody. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Yes, uh, it's been a long road. We are three quarters of the way through our journey. I can't believe we were already so far. Um, it's been an interesting year, and we have a lot to discuss about this book. I have a lot of comments, but before we get into the River of Shadows, Dylan, I think it's time for one of your uh, famous spoiler warnings. <laughs> yeah, so... We'll be getting into The River of Shadows, which is book three of the Chathryn Voyage in full here. So since we're not going to be holding back for spo from spoilers here, that means if you haven't yet read The River of Shadows, nor the two previous books, that's The Red Wolf Conspiracy and The Rats in the Ruling Sea, aka just The Ruling Sea, then now's a good time to go check out those books, catch up. Uh, but it's also a good time to turn this down in your headphones so you don't get anything spoiled for you from this awesome series. Well said. We highly recommend it, so go check it out and come back, and then be sure to check out Blaze's Discord as well, where we're all on there answering questions, making comments, all of that, so be sure to take advantage of all of that. And uh, yeah, see you next time. But for everyone else that's read the books, welcome. Um, man, this book was a journey and a half. You left us with, at the end of book two, with this huge reveal that, you know, we're in this foreign land and most humans are unwoken. And it was just like, I remember talking at the end of the last episode, I was like, and I just immediately had already read the first couple chapters of the book going into that recording because I just couldn't wait. And then it doesn't really stop from there. This book has so many different settings, situations, ideas, characters, timeline changes, <laughs> intrigue on top of intrigue. It, it, it's such a such a intricate, detailed book. And I guess that leads me to my first question, Robert. I, when I got to the end, I was checking the acknowledgments. And this first paragraph here, I love so much, if you don't mind me reading it, and then I have a question afterwards here, you're just kind of describing the process of writing this book. Each book is a wrestling match with human frailty, clocked by a merciless timekeeper in a ring surrounded by an infinity of other rings, where different, often larger struggles go on day and night. I'm keenly aware that those who helped with the River of Shadows had to slip out of their own rings, bruises and all, and step into my own. So I guess, Robert, my first question to you is, like, what was, do you remember the experience of writing this book and how on earth did you keep track of all of these time changes and plotted intrigues and who's possessing who, possessing who? What was the experience <laughs> like writing The River of Shadows? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, first off, as I started thinking back on this process, I recall that this was the book I was most anxious about that it, it might be a hard one to pull off when I when I thought about it because you know we sail right off the map that kind of defines book one and book two and um, and I, I guess I had promised a lot about the southern hemisphere where this book takes place that it was you know the, the, the few voices we get that have any knowledge of it at all, and I guess it's really only one person, Mr. Balutu, who has firsthand knowledge, since he's the, the only ambassador, you will, of the Southern Hemisphere who we meet in the first two books. All of the messages we get are that it is wildly different beyond anything that people in the North can comprehend or understand. And that's a lot to promise a reader. <laughs> so, so there was that, and... Um, I, I just wanted to pull that off without, you know, holding back in the least. And it also, you know, to completely change canvas. I mean, it's like these 
characters we've spent the first, you know, I don't know, 1,500 pages or whatever it might add up to from book one and two, like they got in a spaceship and were dropped on another planet. And to do that in the middle of a story also was, was uh, daunting, I guess, because, you know, you've, characters are one thing in one place, you know, we're so much the products of, of the places and the cultures and the structures of society that are around us. Um, and, you know, whenever you're traveling, that is subject to change, but really, really radical travel. I mean, everything about the context was different. And I guess, um, so I found myself clinging to the characters, a small handful of the characters that we know pretty intimately, really tight in this, in this story, as they just, they kind of went through this open air kaleidoscope funhouse slash house of horrors of the Southern hemisphere. So, so there was that. I also, you know, the, um, it's, it's kind of nice with a quartet as opposed to a trilogy. I think I'm learning now as I write my first trilogy, I'm in the, I'm in the third round of the third book, I guess, home stretch, but with a trilogy, the middle book is cursed. I think, you know, that it's got to beautifully, um, articulate with both book one and book three so it, you know it has to it has to be its own thing it has to be um satisfying in its own right it has to continue everything that's promised from the first book and set you up just right for the finale with a quartet with four books you know that process of transition is broken into two so this was this was really the like crossing a, like a national border where on one side it was all establishment, you know, I guess, or you could say in, you know, in story structure terms, the, the arc was right at its peak as I got into book three and it's starting to move towards denouement or I still, there was still a sense of setting up and setting up and setting up with books one and two. Um, so it all it, so it was high pressure and um, and I also didn't have a title and I had not realized how important it was for my um, grasp of, of the book or of any book to have that title that sort of gathered it all to in my imagination and so it, I'll get into that maybe later but the, the search for a title you know was really hard and, and it kind of seems obvious with the way it turned out that you know it would be called the River of Shadows but the actual thing, the river of shadows, was not even an idea, or at least not a conscious idea, until I came across the title and realized that's the thing I've been looking for. That's what's been missing here, you know. So yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about the pacing of it because it's true you do a total departure uh, from the settings that we know and love from books one and two I, even the chatheran gets you know brought off of for the first time ever as, since it's like creation gets you know lifted off the water as they make the repairs on it so you make a clear statement that this is a totally completely different world different setting and that's and yeah they're not at sea anymore for most of this book yeah. right they're actually walking around and and meeting these new alien-like species for us and they're alien to the people around them you know they have a very different idea of humanity than we do so it was a really fun process for me to to watch and learn and discover but I'm kind of curious blaze to get your reaction as someone that has read the series before uh what what was it like revisiting the river of shadows and what what has stuck out to you on the reread yeah <clears throat> sorry <clears throat> excuse me uh rereading the river of shadows it was definitely an eye-opening experience because going through it the first time you have no idea what to expect because it's everything so foreign in terms of the people in terms of the different time time shifts in terms of um the the landscape and the different creatures that we meet but revisiting once again you get to dig deeper and you get to see the little intricacies that i missed the first time and every reader uh especially with this series 
does it. There's little clues that you're just, you're not aware of because your mind is not trained to look for them. So I enjoyed finding those little, little secrets. And particularly, I didn't remember this reading back the first time, but learning a lot, especially in this book about um, Pazel's uh, mother and how like all of like what was her upbringing, how her, she integrates into this whole story. That was something that I just loved reading about as well as learning more about like Bluetooth and how his, him being the ambassador and what he had to go through and everything in this series. And also of course the ending, which perfectly sets up for uh, book four, which that's for the next episode, but that's just something that I really loved uh, revisiting this. I agree, Blaze. It's interesting that you bring up Pazel's mother, because that's a question that I had written down for you, Robert. In an earlier episode, we were talking about like the characters taking different directions than you thought when you initially started out writing the series. And one of the characters that you had mentioned was in, in later books, Pazel's mom, Suthinia, really kind of took off for you and went in a different direction than you were expecting. I, my question is, are we starting to see some of those kind of breakthrough moments in this book that you were alluding to? I think so. Um, yeah, it, uh, you know, Suthenia was always fascinating to me and like, you know, a number of other characters, um, I guess it was it was necessary for me to leave her a bit mysterious in the first, uh, in the first few books. And, um, in many ways, getting to go to the South, to the Southern Hemisphere, um, was something I'd been waiting for. Um, and, you know, so much, you know, in, in the sense we, we find out that the, the whole language that is spoken in the North, the most widespread language in the North is actually just an offshoot and a derivation of the imperial language of the South and so on. I think that the, the origins of so much of what seems all encompassing and so very important in the North is, you know, to see that it is in a large way has always been connected to the South. Um, and that, you know, so Suthenia and her past and her, you know, her connection to Ramachni and so on, her connection to um, who Thasha really is and all of that uh, is, um, you know, it was there. I didn't, I didn't make final decisions about what it was because I'm I'm more excited to find out as I go. But mm. you know, just as my instincts kind of nudged me one way or another, it, you know, I, I try to keep um, surprising and exciting myself as I go too. So, so yeah, I guess it was payoffs for me as as a writer too. It's like, oh, I learned that about my story today. You know, right. and hopefully it feels like that to a reader. For sure. I think what's interesting about this book is it's not the end, but we do get a lot of reveals and closures in a lot of way. You know, we learn kind of a lot more of the mystery behind Suthenia Pazel's mom and why she did some of the things she did. We didn't really know her allegiance. We kind of learned more about the whole involvement with Full Breach and, and not Full Breach, um, Chad Fellow, why Dr. Chad Fellow's involvement in that relationship really was after he had been kind of avoiding talking to Pazel about that for so long. And then, of course, a bunch of other things along the way, the will they, won't they of some relationships. Um, you, we get an exciting um, final with Arunis. But before I get into any of that, I want to make sure, Dylan, that I, I hear from you because you reread the book as well. Um, I know we kind of got to chat a little bit about the book before we went into this, but I'm just curious to know what are some of the things that stood out for you on the reread? Yeah, one of the main things is getting to see Robert building toward the reveals a little bit more rather than being completely in them and trying to figure them out myself. I'm like, okay, well, I know where this is going now. So uh, like you said, there's a bunch of big moments of reveals in this like the Arethusme reveal for Thasha there's also uh, like both full, bre full breach and Sororis we realize at the top of their chain is actually Arunas and then uh, the uh, interactions between Arunas and the Ravens which like are super mysterious at first I kind of know the order of things a little bit better and that like Arunas is basically just trying to do a school project to reach <laughs> godhood all that kind of stuff and uh, you start to uh, see Robert Billington especially I, I love the Thasha reveal just with how like 
a lot of the mages and characters like that are very deferential toward her and they see like the they know what's going on with her even when she doesn't. And uh, you get these moments with her where she kind of like pops into Arethusme mode briefly. <laughs> and then she's just like, oh, I don't, I don't know what just happened there. Like, what did I even say? <laughs> and you realize, oh, okay, we're we're building toward and this character we've heard so much about is actually has been with us the whole time. And it's such a fun reveal. And it's cool to get to see it from a bit of more of a bird's eye view, the reveal eyes view in this one. <laughs> that was something too, that, you know, was at the level of instinct for a long time with me. It's like, you know, is she, where is Erethusme's consciousness and soul exactly? You know, and I think probably by a couple of chapters in here, it was crystal clear in my mind, but certainly in book two, while I knew that connection was fundamental, the mechanism was not so so clear to me yet. And it's like, is she going to, you know, raise her from the dead? And is there going to be like sort of a Arethusme spirit there that Thasha can is the gatekeeper for? Or and, and then when I realized, no, it's even more, it's even more kind of tight than that. Um, then I. Then I got afraid for Thasha, you know, actually, and what was going to happen to her. But that is, now we're getting, yeah, we are getting into book four territory a little bit there. But it's actually, I have to admit, it's because it's been, you know, over a decade since I wrote this book. Um, I may make a mistake or two about what's revealed here and what's revealed in book four. <laughs> I, I'm very sort of geographical in my memory. And because they're still in the Ifarak Peninsula in book four for a while, um, there are some things I, I'm going to maybe hesitate and try to hold myself back from um, saying until I'm absolutely sure that it's book three and not book four. But I think well, I got as the it. only person here that hasn't read book four, I think I can be a good test for you. Uh, <laughs> so far, you're in the clear because like when we say we worry about Dasha, it's true this book ends, even though there are so many victories and reveals in this book, it kind of ends, although wholesome, there's also this worry for Dasha at the end of like, is she gonna have to choose between her identity and accessing the power she needs to save the world, right? Because this whole premise now is she's kind of gotten to live her as her own soul, and she may need to give that up to unlock more of Arethusme's um, memories and powers and things. So you're like, that is a tough choice to have, especially woven into the the new relationship that she has with Pazel too. It's like so, like right on top of each other. It's like all this hope and all this love, and then the idea that she may have to lose all of that and choose to lose it so that she can save people is such a, a fascinating premise. And I, I think that's like one of the main ways in which this whole series has shined for me, just these absolutely original situations and, and premises and, and ideas that we find ourselves in, in these stories. It's, it's very creative. And I often wonder how you even think of them and then keep track of them because it's like, okay, even the beginning of this book, we have the berries, the smoke, the antidote. Some people can come out, but have to go back in. It's like just tracking that. And that's just one of the things. Forget that they are flash forward 200 years in time and and that Pazel's sister is there and they have to talk to them. And it's like, oh my goodness. What was the, like, did you ever, from a world building perspective, like, what was your process like keeping track of all these things and plotting all these things and making sure that every detail was accounted for when you have all of these intricate, original, complex ideas? Lots of things taped up on the walls of my <laughs> study, for one thing. I mean, like, you, you reminded me of that, the, the whole Ixchel trap with the, the breathed-in poison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of people that they trapped there and a lot of fundamental characters and I um and I did have to have like a little cheat sheet up on the wall to remember oh they those two can't actually talk because one of them is in the trap and one of them is not um and it was a pretty deliberate decision I guess about you know I, I guess I was trying to think in the terms that those the Ixchel plotters would have used like how are we going to neutralize all the factions on the ship give 
everyone something to lose if they stand against us. And they were really pretty smart about that. Yeah, <laughs> it was very effective. But so, yeah, I, and I, um, you know, honestly, the hardest, hardest, hardest thing, and the, the, the only part in this whole quartet that made me have to do some rewrites when I sort of stumbled was time travel. Time travel is just a butt kicker, you know, logistically. It just was real. And, and this is, you know, potentially reversible time travel and time travel that works one way and once and here, I'll be careful. I don't, you know, some of this may not be revealed yet, but it, it's very complex and it's, you know, has to do with where you are on the planet and things like that. Right. And which direction um, you're crossing I'm the storm to. You had yeah, to be like store, crossing but... one way. Well, like as long as you go one way, you're fine. But when you try and go back, that's when the skip happens. But the skip is kind of yeah. eroding over time. So it's like maybe we can time it just right. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> love the idea. Oh, yeah. Okay. So all that does yeah. come up in book three, right? Yes. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's a clever reveal too, because I, I don't know. I'd never thought of that during the first read. That oh, the time skip might have happened before when Balutu first crossed uh, over to get to their side. So, mm -hmm. you, you, you know, you see things from the perspective that you've always been in, but it's a good reveal, I think. It, I, it didn't cross my mind. Yeah, it's almost like sci-fi in a way of like, no, the skip happened immediately for you and it has not happened for them. So they're in kind of these two different states of mind on like, I've been living a lie this whole time versus, oh, there's still hope for me. And it's kind of, even though the results are going to virtually potentially be the same. So it's really fascinating to get the psychology of Balutu in that moment and versus the psychology of some of the other characters who are still clinging on to hope. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Only Balutu is, can sort of definitively despair of seeing his family again because there's, you know, to the extent that anything's definitive. But yeah, and I remember too... Um, I, I had to keep drawing a globe and put with the red storm across the middle and, and, and jotting things, you know, this timeline, these people are here while these things are going on in the actual chapters of the book, these people are dead. <laughs> Just, it was very, very complicated. Yeah, I'm picturing but, your uh, writing office as one of those like detective shows where you've got papers all over the wall and red string going every which way. <laughs> well, then also, you know, I, I, I wrote out the history of both the North and the South and, you know, cause there's many, many references to, you know, wars centuries before and, um, you know, duels between wizards and, and times when the reigns of, you know, this kind of uh, kingdom or empire were, was ascendant versus another and so on. But the North and South don't even have the same calendars. And um, so I had to keep track of, what was going in and but a few very key people do move between the hemispheres all along right in the very few ships that could do that but i had to i had to set up a spreadsheet where events in the northern hemisphere a timeline for that went down one column and then events in another hemisphere using a different calendar okay. um, or, and then and then just have a third column that was simply a count of years from a single point that wasn't any calendar, but so I could see how they matched up. And oh then you add on to that, the time travel. <laughs> so I would have, have, you know, the arrows that say, well, here's where it stops being linear anywhere. Yeah. So <laughs> that's so fascinating. From a geeky <laughs> point of view. Make it easy on yourself, Robert. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why I was saying no more time travel. Just done. <laughs> and, you know, there's no time travel in Sidewinders. <laughs> Well, not yet. Not <laughs> uh, that's fascinating. I, I'd like to pivot a little bit and talk about characters. We, we got to dabble in Thasha a little bit, but Blaze, I wanted to turn this over to you. In a series with, rich with characters, uh, I'd like to hear from you. What were some of the, or the standout, or some of the standout characters that you encountered in River of Shadows to kind of kick off our character discussion here? Yeah, so those the two, or I should say probably three that stood out to me. We already talked about uh, Pazel's uh, mother and the, in, and the intricacies of her character, how she was brought up and the, mm -hmm. the magic she used, her relationship and all that. Um, but the two that really stood out to me 
was one was uh, obviously Chad Fellow because we get a deeper understanding to him and his relationship with Pazel's mother, how Pazel and him are still like they're butting heads, so, so to speak. But it but the more and more they learn about each other, like the kind of calms calms the waters. So, but just learning more about Chad Fellow is something I wanted since book one. He's such a mysterious character. You don't yeah. know what his end game is. You don't know what his um, other desires are. Obviously, yeah, he's, I think he's in, in love with Pazel's mother, but in a very friendly, paternal type of, not paternal, um, friendship type of way. The other one was um, uh, Fiffingert, the, the, <laughs> the rat. <laughs> and, the, and, the <laughs> and what goes on with him, he's seeing, he's seeing ghosts, he's doing different, different things and just learning more you about- mean, You mean Felthrop? Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I shouldn't too, have made those names so similar. <laughs> too many, um, too many, uh, too many Fs in this. Uh, too, too many characters with the Fs in this. Yeah, Felthrop. Um, him seeing him seeing ghosts. Him doing all these little um, adventures and how they relate back to to the main group. So I always loved learning more about about him. And uh, yep, that leads right into book four. <laughs> you're, in for, you're in for a wild ride. Um, yeah, Felthrop was an interesting one. He's He's more critical than ever, but he's kind of been reserved in terms of his screen time in the book. And it's kind of fascinating to think like he's kind of the the, the whole point, the river of shadows. He's like the only one that's like going in there, traversing, holding meetings. And and his really his only fuel is that he's trying to do good for his friends, just his concern for his friends and the world. And he doesn't even remember when he wakes up what he was up to. He's just purely driven by doing good for everyone on the ship. And that's what I've always uh, kind of admired about about Felthrip. And he's got this unique sense of humor and this unique perspective that I've always enjoyed as well. And even though he's a rat and he's gotten all kinds of beat up, he's he still finds a way to play a very important role in the troupe. And I always kind of admired that about him. He really does get beaten up a lot. For <laughs> it's like, how much tail do you have left? Yeah. <laughs> I know he you was your, always your own Excel chart of all the different body parts Felthrop's lost throughout the series. It's like, wait, can he run anymore? How many legs did I mangle of his? <laughs> I think he was, you know, like people said, um, or George R. R. Martin would say that people would threaten him with bodily harm if anything happened to Tyrion, right? Right. Um, and it, it was Felthrop for me, no, no doubt. I mean, especially I think after Diadrelu died, and they they realized that characters we care about were not going to be necessarily protected, and then just so much terrible stuff happens to Felthrop that they were like, if he dies, you know, I'm done with you, Robert. Right. But, uh, <laughs> this but, book was uh, more kind to him, I would say. He was able to. Um, fight more in the dream world in the river of shadows this time around but yeah uh, yeah he has he's coming into his power a little bit more if i recall right in book two mm -hmm. the dream world it's it's all torture for him in a way right 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 yeah. he's, he's taking those meetings and getting tortured and china mm -hmm. and, and the other rats are ready to chew him up and right know. right so yeah and this one it's hard to imagine that he gets it easy, but he, he is playing a more integral part on the in the back burner and he's reading the polylex. So he's the one that's actually reading it to Dasha, which is an interesting relationship there. So very much looking forward to what Feltrip is up to in the future. And the idea that he's kind of in this book more than others, he's adopted this kind of like scholarly mind to, you know, he's meeting with all the other scholars and he's admiring them and he's and he's you know, becoming more educated and his, his vocab's expanding. It's a, it's a really fun thing to watch him progress into. So looking forward to tracking all of that for good old Felthrop as well. But uh, Dylan, I know you're always keeping a close eye on characterization in novels. And uh, I was wondering if uh, you, anyone else was standing out to you that you wanted to make sure we hit on. Yeah, I mean, uh, I find Dasha to be, I guess I kind of spoke about her mm -hmm. some already, but I find her to be the most interesting character, I think, from about here on out. I think that some of what we spoke about around the choices she has to make, like she has the power to go full full Arethusme and just leave behind the, uh, like, 
Dasha that we've known and loved for this long, or she has the, the choice to try to continue as Dasha. And we know that the, the swarm is uh, unleashed now. And I think we have uh, just a, like her really coming into her own, you know, she's uh, once we get past the, the full breach stuff, uh, she's a lot more vulnerable and honest with Pazel about her feelings and those two can finally get together. And I think it's just cool to see them. It, it feels like her and Pazel both like become adults really in this book. And I think uh, I like, I like seeing the progression there. We've come a really long way from, I know that first chapter where uh, Robert talked about how he felt like he wrote Tasha too young and like her first chapter of the Red Wolf conspiracy. Yes, I do, um, I do feel like um, that. <laughs> but now I feel like, and this is one thing that always sticks out to me about this series. I feel like it, her just way of processing things and her maturity it feels like she's like an adult now and that progression and the like now the amount of weight that's on her shoulders and pressure that's really interesting to me and i'm excited to see uh i guess everyone here has uh, already read book four but charles at least <laughs> i'm excited to see what you <laughs> end up thinking reading for the first time uh, I'm really glad it came across that way in terms of her maturing, um, you know, emotionally and, and so on. And I, I guess I felt that I was trying to send most of the characters in that direction, but probably Fasha and apologies. My Airbnb is right next to the airport. So if it sounds like, you know, <laughs> you are indeed hearing airplanes in the background, <laughs> um, but Fasha, yeah, she, she is shouldering a burden that the others can sympathize with, but not entirely share. Um, and she's having these, you know, mystical experiences and these scarring experiences with the Nilstone and with Arethusme waking up and so on. Um, that I think just, you know, they're all growing up, but she is experiencing this rich internal change that um, just forces a kind of sobriety and seriousness upon her that um yeah uh, so I'm, I'm glad she seemed to be you know growing up i felt like when i look back on these characters you know as this overall story kind of went into the closing scenes like i put them all through a war you know they, they seemed like veterans by the time even though they're still very young you know relatively speaking um they they just don't uh they don't have the kind of childish quality that we start with so much. I mean, it's a little difficult, I must admit, I, um, with, with the name Neeps, you're never going to seem but so mature. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, and that's one thing, you know, I wish um, Neeps had been given a little less of a whimsical name. Because, <laughs> well, he's you know. got the full proper name. It's just, yeah, uh, he does. no one can be bothered to say it. <laughs> right. <exactly. laughs> uh, but yeah, it's true. Uh, Thasha does age really. And especially in this book, I feel like she had to internalize so much more burdens that other people can, like you said, Robert, sympathize with, but not really relate to. And it's, throughout the whole book, I think it's kind of mirrored by the will they, won't they relationship between her and Pazel. I feel like that was kind of one of the book long questions that we had that was resolved by the end, but it's interesting to watch like her relationship with Full Breach, for example, uh, where she had to pretend to be in a relationship with this person knowing that he was in a sense evil right and that he was it was the means to an end and that she had to lie to the people she cared about most her friends and hurt Pazel specifically in order to achieve that and and there's the fact that she was able to kind of sacrifice some of that speaks a lot to her maturity and, and it kind of parallels interestingly I remember in book two when Pazel had to keep secrets from everybody, including Thasha, because um, Lady Agas was threatening to kill all the Excellus, right? Something along those lines. And he had oh, to keep, and he had to, yeah, he, he had <laughs> to keep a secret from her and she could tell that he was being guarded. And, and then now it's kind of flipped and now she's keeping secrets from him and he still somehow managed to screw it up anyway. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But uh, well, we love Pazel for charging in, but uh, that was a tough one. <laughs> uh, 
That was a tough one when he uh, blew the plan, that whole plan, uh, so delicately planned. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's, you know, the heart making a mess of everything sort of situation. Right, but, so. <laughs> yeah, that, I, felt, um, I felt kind of, the, the, I, I felt the pain that those two were going through in book three with some, for, you know, different, from different perspectives, one knowing why the pain is being experienced and the other puzzle just being completely confused because he's the one that has to be kept in the dark. Right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, um, you know, we did kind of answer the question of will they or won't they pretty um, <laughs> definitively here. But it's kind of interesting because it brings me back. There was a chapter. I remember visibly, it was one of those like letters from the editor where they're going like, um, they're not getting together. They're too young. Don't even think about it. Don't worry about it. The end. And I was like, that's an interesting chapter to have included in this story because it was right when they kind of get reunited and you're hopeful. And then like we've had these letters from the editor throughout. So it's kind of funny to be like, I know what you're thinking that they might get together, but you can let that thing die right now because they're not, they're too young. And then later they do end up getting together. So I wanted to question you about that chapter specifically, Robert, and <laughs> like, what kind of things are you, are you weaving in here? Is this, to me, I was kind of like, oh, you know, historical accounts are kind of baloney or maybe he's being purposefully, the, the editor's being purposefully directive or did you just want to try and distract our minds and so that the reveal is that much more surprising what was your um strategy with that chapter <laughs> you know i i felt like i knew why i was including it when i wrote it but then i then it, it was harder to be sure when, once it was there i mean what i felt like i was doing was um so we're just to be clear we're talking about this little um editorial aside like many times the editor steps in and says you know oh yeah we can tell they're sort of flirting and making eyes at each other but don't imagine it's going to become you know that it's that it'll be consummated because of course that can't happen and i think right. to some degree i was playing with um publishing expectations to some degree that you know when you have teenagers they're not going to just have a sexual relationship that mm -hmm. that you know you put on the page and run with it um and, you know, to some degree, I think it's, we, we, we have cultural prohibitions or, or complications, at least for all of that, for, for reasons. At another level, you know, this is what teenagers are trying to do at that age. And right. so I guess I was just trying to put that whole tension, that sort of unresolvable tension, like right out there and sort of point out the absurdity on all sides, you know. There's a there's an absurd element as well as a practical element to those prohibitions, you know, mm -hmm. the, the notion of, well, of course, we bodily mature precisely so that we can do nothing about it for another 12 or 14 years or whatever it might be. <laughs> right. But, um, it's, it's just funny because the chapter in question is called The Editor Reflects on the Conduct of His Heroes, which is a great <laughs> title to that chapter. And then some of the quotes are like, the very first line is, they are, of course, too young next paragraph that so you know of what i speak and then it goes on it's like but i repeat it cannot happen said bliss cannot and therefore does not impend they are too young like he's very much like like adamant about it and that's about halfway in the book it's not another 200 pages until <laughs> it does happen so yeah. <laughs> it was just kind of like a i was like this is a i enjoyed this chapter i thought it was um you know it was like kind of a good comment because right then like you're queued up to be like well they won't they like they might actually it could happen and then immediately you rip off the band-aid of like it cannot happen <laughs> and that, you know it was it was you know comical and and in the editor's weird way sort of his his sort of wry sarcastic way of of approaching things at the same time i guess what i realized yet later was it was sort of about the the tug of war of them losing their their, their childhood or their youth you know mm -hmm. i guess i should say they themselves kind of wonder what's happening to these young people we were right. you know and do we want to hold on to it are we abandoning it and jumping in with both feet and so on and so there you know i guess and that's what happens at that age right we're we're in this sort of limbo of of transformation 
So they're asking themselves these questions too. And then of course, society's in your face all the time when, when you're at that age saying, well, this is how it should be. Of course, of course, of course. And that's making it all harder to, to figure out. So, yeah. And we, we were talking about how our characters are maturing and how they like live through a war. A lot of the conversation, even around, you know, Neep's relationship as well. It's like, we thought we were going to die, man. Like, <laughs> I don't know what you, what you expect of us. And it, it's true. They're, they're facing these challenges together. And, um, one of the themes that I actually wanted to talk about, and it seems to me like one of the more prevailing themes of this book compared to the other two is about love specifically. I feel like this book brings a lot more attention to love, not just between like, like partners, but just a lot of different relationships across the board. And there are two quotes that came to mind for me, one kind of earlier in the book and one towards the end. And I wanted to just kind of quickly go through them both and then Robert kind of get your reaction on like the role that, like how you kind of brought this theme of love into this book and what your thought process was like. But the first one is from Pazel's mom, Suthinia, and she's talking about why she did the thing she did, which has always been kind of questionable. It's like, was she crazy? Did she like try and kill her kids or like what's going on? And she finally reveal her role in it. And then she talks about love and she goes, our own kind, human love, we never can make that work. It's like the milk I used to send you from the Brick Path Dairy, always souring, sometimes even before you reached home, souring into fear or dumb greed or shame. And that's kind of the early premise of love that we've gotten. This was before people got together and, you know, yeah, all these reveals and all of that. And then a moment that stuck out to me that I almost shared on the Discord, but I was like, I'm speaking about it tomorrow, so I'll hold on to it, was um, Pazel's trying to get healed from his spider bite and he meets with this foreign species this ancient species and i believe the guy's name is i'm going to try and pronounce it kirishgan kirishgan uh, kirishgan is how i think of it kirishgan yeah. perfect and kirishgan gives him this gift it's like a silk orb this delicate glass-like orb and Pazel's like it's beautiful but how you giving it to me but how can i not break it you know how can i keep from breaking it and he goes you cannot but surely you knew that already we can possess a thing but not its loveliness that always escapes close your fist lock your door imprison the cherished thing in your home or heart it makes no difference when next you look a part of what you cherish will be gone so it's kind of this to me that was an important quote because this whole book is about love this whole will they won't they and then in the end Dasha kind of chooses her love for Pazel to to keep her identity going into the fourth book so it's the idea of like yeah like things are complicated it could sour it could whatever but the point is it's a very precious thing that you have to enjoy while you can and then even when you lose it the the gift of having it is always worth it kind of was how I walked away from this book. And when you compare that to Pazel's relationship with their mom and then Paza and Thasha, uh, and then, you know, all these other characters that have done these things for love that have been, that have been revealed with full breach. And even with um, Ramachni's love for Arethusme, it's like all of these things come together at the end. So I was kind of wondering how you kind of built this, premise of love and every different character's perspective and like this idea that love is this cherished thing that we may ultimately lose or it's delicate or it's temporary and how that kind of got couched into this whole series well it's a big question i doubt i'll be able to you know answer <laughs> um fully but um it occurs to me that you know only only in the in the seeking of love does a certain aspect of feeling it kind of function. At least as, as the way I as the way I imagine it. That you know, there's there's the the seeking and the wanting, and then there's the achieving and and um, you know living with, which are such different things. And so probably that sense of love that you know it's it's. Um, it is never sort of a stable, still thing that is, you know, like, you know, as in that second quote that you talked about, you know, something you sort of just put on the mantle and there's, and it's just there perfect. And, and, you know, you've achieved a kind of nirvana state that was just, you know, I, I think that's, 
an ideal for the next world, the next life, more than a reality in this one, you know, uh, uh, in a stable way, at least, you know, love achieved and safe and secure is a wonderful thing. And I'm really glad to have it with my partner, et cetera. But, but it is a, it's a different sort of mental and emotional state than this kind of quest for it. And, um, and neither better nor worse, but I think that for so many of us struggling with love as say, you know, Suthenia was in a large part of, not, not, yeah, sorry, Suthenia was in a large part of her life um, with Gregory Path Kendall and with Chad Fellow and with her own children and so on in different ways. Um, you know, when she has that sort of a pessimistic summary of how she thinks of human love um, for Puzzle, uh, that that's reflective of things not working out in a romantic sense and choices she's made that have pushed her away. I mean, I think we get it from, from Ramachni and Suthenia in different kind of articulations, right? That um, the choice to have a life as a mage, as a, as a wizard or as a, as a user of magic makes uh, a certain uh, satisfaction or, or fullness of life as a normal human impossible. And maybe that also is my kind of instinct is that there's always choices, you know, that there's always the, um, you're not going to have everything perfectly. And those choices can really be um, wrenching and transforming. And, the, you know, that's kind of what the journey of love and the experience of love is. And, you know, for instance, you know, however we relate to the notion of, of monogamy or an exclusivity in a relationship, if the reality is that a lot of people feel incredibly torn between two people that sort of, you know, touch different parts of their souls. Um, and, you know, you may or may not be able to be fulfilled with both, you know, and often not. Um, so, so I guess it's just, you know, the, the story as I, as it came out, created moments and instances and, and situations in which that kind of philosophy or, or, instinct for me about what love is could take tangible form. Well, well, thank you for sharing that, Robert. I could tell that there was some real kind of philosophy behind many of these quotes and they're, and they're so well written that um, I realized, I said, what's your philosophy on love? It's a big question, but uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you do tackle those things so well in these books. And it's what I like about it most is it's complicated and it's not always pleasant. I mean, this is the mother figure telling their son love sours pretty quickly. It's like, what? That's such a hard <laughs> thing to hear. But then there's the hopeful tag of like, you enjoy it. And then, you know, you, you have to experience it while you can and you sacrifice certain things and that kind of gives it power. So I, I really appreciate that. And that was one of the things that stuck with me at the end of this book is like how amazingly complicated, but such a gift as well that love is. So I, I appreciated that. And then with the ending of Dasha choosing Pazel was a great way to kind of tile that up for me. So that was- Well, I should, I should just, you know, footnote it by saying there are characters who feel despondent or cynical about love. I believe that the, the tale overall is not. Um, yeah. I know that I wouldn't, I wouldn't read a, a long tale that is basically like love stinks like that old <laughs> 70s song <laughs> at all. Right. So, right oh we got a footnote that's so exciting <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I can imagine the guy that wrote Catherine voyage adding footnotes that's that's not surprising at all <laughs> but i agree and i think the fact that you know it's the core team it's neeps dasha puzzle um her cole, like the fact that they have stuck together and can trust and rely upon each other is like their true power and gives them the perseverance to get through all of these things. And I even think in the first book before Ramachni left, he said something like that of like, as long as there's love between you guys, there's hope. And then even her cole says, hey, as long as we're alive, we haven't lost. So I do strongly believe that, um, you know, this book 
can be can take away a lot of hope at times but there's always that that shining light and then we get that satisfying beheading at the end of this one we're like mm, yeah so but they almost literally have to go to hell before that exactly. in, in the infernal forest right oh yeah fighting all those fire demons and crazy bats and things yeah it was such a wild uh turn of events in that final rising action moment for sure but and even then at the end there's this ominous thing of oh yeah so death has been released and we'll have to worry about that soon but have fun while you can guys we're gonna fight death next (laughs) so it's like okay uh we're hopeful now but that little piece did escape into the world Uh, arunus's last act yeah but was unleashing that so um that will bring us into the fourth book. But before we end the conversation, um, Blaze, I wanted to bring it back to you one more time. Was there anything about the story that we want you wanted to comment on before we called the day? I know there's just so much to these stories. I wanted to make sure we had an opportunity to touch another standout moment for you. Yeah, of course. So it's the oldest saying in the book. It's it's like it's better to have loved and lost than to have never have loved at all. And that's what this whole not just book uh, three, it's the, um, this whole series is about. It's about relationships, how they're complicated, how sacrifices need to be made. And you can see that in any real life relation, relationship as well. Um, it's just, it's the, making the difficult choices that need to be made, persevering the hard, the hard times and just fighting through to the end. Is your relationship or is your strength strong enough to withstand that? For, for our characters, some of them are. Some some people can't do that. So it's just a testament of the human soul and what, um, how like perseverance, uh, if you have it, will shine through. And I also wanted to just make one quick comment about, we were talking about like, the editor notes and it's kind of in relationship to another series that I'm reading, but it'll, it'll come through. So the, in the other series, the um, it's, a, it's a king leading his people to another land and rewriting his own history. I'm sorry wow. about that. Rewriting his own history, but it's not the history that he just lived. So he's writing in a certain way that it'll tell his story the way he wants it to be told. And reading back that editor's note, I'm sure it's probably not um, entirely like that. He's saying one thing, but then it's contradicted in what we're reading. So it's it's always sometimes when you're reading something from um, from a historian's point of view, it's is he telling the whole truth? Or is he telling his truth and what he believes? So that's just something more in the back of my mind. I was saying, wait a second, can this be true? I like to believe <laughs> that he's telling- messing with you too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like to believe that he's telling the truth, but that reading that section, it reminded me, it's like, oh, wait, maybe it's not the whole truth. Maybe it's just in his eyes. So I thought that was very interesting. And in book four, you get to finally meet the editor face to face. Oh yeah, that's a that's a, that's a fun time. I have my theories, but um, since you can't honestly react to them because you know who it is, I'll just keep them to myself for now. But uh, I'm excited with my own my own guesses, and I'll have to write it down on a piece of paper or something so that we can see if I was right. But I I doubt I could be, but we'll, I'll give it a try anyway. Um, yeah, I I think that's a great point. I I kind of got that vibe as well, Blaze. It's like. Is it projecting some sort of bias or is it making a comment? Is it writing, you know, just to be a troll? Like there's so many options. And I, I think keeping us on our toes like that, it, it's such a great, I think this, this book is so unique in its use of the editor's voice and footnotes and things. It injects humor sometimes. It injects like this ominous tone sometimes. It, it, kind of comments on the historical events that are happening it it kind of couches this whole thing as a historical event it's like i believe this book even kicks off with like oh the mysterious disappearance of the chaffran so you're like oh interesting now we're we're writing from the end kind of so to have that interwoven in through the whole story is is just what it just adds another flavor of originality to this story so i think keeping that in mind as we read these directly contradicting events is always fascinating to be like yeah let's go back and like what's the editor's role in this story and like like it it has us taking that step back which i I enjoy quite a bit and the payoff for the ending is something i'm i'm really looking forward to to see where this all goes 
Blaze, what's that story that you're reading? I'm just curious. It sounds so interesting. <laughs> oh, it's um, it's the Drowned Kingdom saga by P.L. Stewart. It's, uh, oh, it's, fan- wow. it's a fantastic historical type epic fantasy if you're interested in it. I'm definitely interested. That sounded really neat. I'll get you in touch with the author. Oh, great. Yeah, but it, with those, um, with this editor, who I'm trying not to even, you know, gender or name, so it's not to give any reveal, but the editor in my memory is sort of at times like the irritating person who keeps making remarks during a movie, you know, a few seats away from you, just when you're like, no, stop it. But then (laughs) at other times is, uh, you know, someone who really does give you a tool to see what's going on in a very different way. And, um, and certainly comic relief, but also kind of, um, I hope useful popping of a certain tension bubble, at moments when it actually helps to have the, an injection of of someone who's just so removed from it that you kind of can step back and see it. You know, you don't, I hope, stop caring, but you get a kind of ironic distance of it and remember the sort of grand absurdity of history, if you will. Yeah. No, I think it's great. And I think it all ties into the flavor of, especially in the first two books, and we were, it was a more seafaring adventure, not so much in this book, but it kind of just added more flavor to that, where it's almost like, you know, there's captain's logs, there's letters from the captain, there's editor's notes, it, it all adds to the adventurous kind of historical nature of it. So that's, I, I think you're spot on. I, that's how I read it as well. It's kind of these like, contextualized moments of what's going on and the point of view is is as similar to us as we're going to get but it's still slightly different so it's fascinating to see because uh, the editor knows exactly what happens you would think because they're writing the whole thing so it, it's or going through all the events so it's really interesting to to see what they're up to when those chapters come in you know and then you, sometimes they follow particularly like exciting moments whether it's like a all these mutant rats breaking out of the ship and then you have to kind of write the palate cleanser. It's like, it's kind of that shift in tone. Sometimes it, it, it adds some intrigue to it as well. Where you're like, Oh, that's funny. Like, he's, like if we have this tool, this editor's note, what, like how funny uh, it's just an interesting slot to put it in right after this huge mutant rat battle, you know, or like right before mm-hmm. a battle or something like that. It's like, and this battle raged on and on and on. And it was really exciting. <laughs> and now we're here and you're like, Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, my my actual editor for the series did try to suggest that maybe we just want to stay in the adventure and not have these sort of um, metafictional interruptions. And I was like, it, it, please trust me, it would lose something, and it would <laughs> it would lose a lot more than it would gain to take those out. And got to um, hand it to him; he he completely accepted that, and it was just you know, a little suggestion. Maybe it would have made it more commercial. <laughs> We'll never know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad you fought for it, Robert. I agree. It's so uniquely this series that I can't imagine taking it away at this point. It's like... I couldn't imagine it. I, you know, it was... I, I couldn't because... I, I mean, and that, the reasons for that will also become a lot more clear in book four. Because yes. it does. <laughs> but before we get into our book four discussion, Dylan, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Blaze just now, just making sure... Any other standout moments we need to make sure we touch on? I mean, we go so many, we have like mushroom spores and forests and ice mountains and lava trolls. It's like, and all kinds of love and relationships and Neeps is going to be a dad. And there's just so many things going on in this story. But as we near time, Dylan, are there any other moments you want to make sure that we address before we bring it into book four? Yeah, I really like the idea of this inn with the tavern of sort of like neutrality and the, I guess, like the responsibility and the culpability of running an inn like this, where we have a lot, I don't have the quote in front of me, but we have a line where he's like, yeah, there's probably been wars started here and like terrible things that have happened because two people are allowed to talk here. But I think there's been more who like have been saved and more things have been resolved because there's this point of absolute neutrality. And I think, uh, A, it's just a cool concept like i don't know what even to compare it to and uh, b i really like that like arunus basically gets thrown out 
of the tavern <laughs> where what it does in part is show this person who's just held to this neutrality their entire existence is like okay no Arunus is such a villain such a bad uh, person or I guess mage uh, where it's like no this is too far you're trying to destroy like an entire planet <laughs> you have to get out of here so basically just to I, pass I like your exams up. right <laughs> like, yeah you want a good grade so you're gonna kill a planet right yeah <laughs> yeah so it, it helps us yeah it helps us see how bad like our villain is and it makes it even more satisfying when Thasha uh, decapitates him at the end so and, and on that I'll say it's cool to actually have Arunus die at the end of book three instead of stretching it out into book four and it's uh it's a really satisfying conclusion there there were readers who thought the, the whole thing was over with book three or at least mm. were tempted and they're like is there a fourth book worth of stuff going on here? Well, yeah, there is. <laughs> but was uh, it originally going to be a trilogy? I feel like I heard that somewhere. And oh man, it was originally going to be one book. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I thought this was just going to be like my my little year and a half um, sabbatical in the world of fantasy writing before I went back to literary fiction. <laughs> but I just didn't know what I was getting into at all. You know, I. Basically, I I kind of set up an arc that was really huge, even to cover in four books, and I didn't yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. So I I threw all these juggling balls up in the air and just just had to start juggling them. And it it, it couldn't be done in one book by me at least, and um, you know barely fit in four long books. But yeah, so it, it, I never when I was writing this particular book. I, I absolutely knew by then that it was going to be four. Um, yeah. and, but uh, it, early on, when I realized this, this story is running away with me, it's getting really big. Yeah, that was, that was a shocker. That's an understatement. Oh, this, is, you know, this is a decade or more of my life, which was great, but you know, not, not as I had planned. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> well, we're super thrilled to continue it and we're, we're so happy to have you here in the discussion robert to to provide your insight for four very intricate large what i love to say wholly original books so uh, i just you know as we near the end of our time of our book three discussion i just want to make sure i said thank you for coming on again and for sharing all of your insight and it's been months now that we've been on this project so really uh, appreciate all of your time uh, working with us on this read-along oh no i mean i i'm just honored and so grateful to you all this is a lot of work on your part and it's it's endlessly gratifying for me awesome and of course this would not be possible without blaze's discord blaze thank you so much again for continuing on this journey with us we really appreciate you coming yeah. on and lending your insight as well as hosting all these really fascinating discussions between us readers the author it's, it's, it's just been so much fun oh thanks for having me i love this i always wanted to reread this series um for the longest time so it's been it's a perfect time to to get back into it yeah, it's been like over eight months since we've like been teasing the fact that we would read this series together. I, I know like Dylan and Blaze had a bond over it. So I'm just thankful I get to read it now and be included on all the on all the fanning out to have Robert here. Such a big bonus. But uh, I mean, that nears us to the end, guys. I mean, here ends our book three discussion of the, the Chathryn Voyage Quartet, but the story continues in the Night of the Swarm, the fourth and final book of this series. Uh, the ending has been something I've been hearing about for years now, since Dylan first picked up this series way back in the day. So I, I cannot express how excited I am to get there and to be able to have that discussion, but it will be the fourth final discussion that we have there's no more books after this sadly but don't worry there's always sidewinders make sure you pick that up <laughs> another wonderful story by robert b s reddick and um 
uh, yeah, we'll probably be back in about a month's time to discuss it. But, you know, the, the dialogue doesn't have to end here. Check out Under the Radar Books. They have a wonderful Discord. And in there, you'll see all the discussions we've been having about the Chaplin Voyage Quartet. It's a community you do not want to miss out on, especially if you've already read these three books and you haven't joined. Like, give it a try. Like, let's go. Let's let's talk. So because, as we said, there's so many things to talk about in these books. It's kind of hard to get through it all in an hour. Um, feel free to message us out there. Uh, but until then, guys, this has been another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. Check out Robert B.S. Freddick. Check out Under the Radar Books. And yeah, I guess we'll we'll see you in about a month's time to read the fourth and final book, The Night of the Swarm. Thank you so much. Had a blast, as I always do. You all are the best. See you soon. Happy reading. Be reading.